Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We are in Matthew chapter 6, and we just prayed. And now uh, we're going to pick it up right around verse 21, I believe. Let me just pull that over there. Uh, so this is the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, or maybe two-thirds of the way through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew has very faithfully recorded Jesus' words here. If you have a red-letter Bible, 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew are red, because it's just Jesus giving the greatest sermon in the history of the universe. Um, he has taught on a variety of things, and he is going to teach now about uh, continuing teaching about true righteousness and contrasting it with phony or fake righteousness. So in verse 19, he talks about uh, treasures. Uh, verse 19 in the NIV says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Literally in the Greek, it's do not treasure treasures. It's literally the word thesaurus. You ever had a thesaurus where you can look up? What's another word for forget or something? And you can look up thesaurus in Greek has to do, it's a treasury of words, in other words. So he's saying, don't store up treasures on earth um, where moth and rust can destroy. Store them up in heaven. We talked about how to do that. It's anything that you do for the kingdom of God, whether with your time or your talent or with your treasure, giving to Christian organizations, certainly giving to a church. Um, you're storing up treasures, uh, not on earth, because the reason he mentions moths and rust and all that stuff is every treasure on earth is temporary. Every treasure in heaven is permanent. So therefore, it's way more valuable. Um, also, you can lose it here because thieves can break in and steal it. Impossible. In heaven, they have really good security up there. Um, but verse 20 says, store for yourselves treasures in heaven. No moths, no rust, no thieves to break in and steal. And then verse 21 which is where we're going to pick it up. We barely touched on it last time. So I know that you're awake. Say amen. Amen. Oh, that's a good one. And those of you on Zoom, so I know you're awake, wave or hold up. Amen from Zoom land. I love it. A new sign. I love it. People hold up signs. Okay. Um, okay. Verse 21. So with that in mind, all we just read about treasure. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So keep in mind in the Jewish context, when you hear heart, it's not what we think in a Western culture in America. We think heart, oh, emotions, love. It's part of it. For a Jew, heart is mind, will, and emotion. But it's more mind. For a Jew, the idea of emotion, we to, I told you before, it's this is odd, I think, but they would, a man would say to a woman, I love you with all my gut, with all my bowels. That's not going to go over that well in this country. Don't try it, guys or gals. But the heart is the center of the will. It's the, the mind and what have you. So what he's saying there is wherever your treasure is, that's what you will think about. That's what you will dream about. That's what you will plan for. And so the question is, if I asked each of you, what's your treasure? Where is your treasure? And you might say, oh, it's Jesus. It's heaven. You know, the Bible. And I, That's great. And maybe it is. But the way to tell 
is to take out your calendar and look at what do you spend your time doing? What do you spend your money on? Look at your credit card bills and your receipts. What do you spend your energy on? And in your idle moments, what do you dream about? What do you think about? We are to seek first, we're going to see before long, his kingdom and his righteousness. So we'll talk about priorities when we uh, get there. The thing about treasure is you can't have it in two places. Notice it's singular, where your treasure is. Treasure, not treasures, treasure. Where it is, that's where your heart's going to be. Um, you'll think about it. You'll desire it. What you value the most is at the center of your heart and will. Some have said to, to figure out what that is, answer the question, what is there in your life or even who is there that if you lost them, the person or the thing, my portfolio, my house, my collectible cars, you would say, I, I have nothing. I've lost it all. That's your treasure. And you might be thinking, oh, but I, th I thought of my kids. I thought of my sister, my brother, my best friends, my spouse. Maybe. And those things are important. But God does not want to be in your top five. And the gospel isn't supposed to be in your top ten. It's supposed to be number one. When you see the eternality of it and the value of it, it makes it a lot easier to understand. But what you value the most, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. The implication is if your treasure's truly in heaven, you're thinking about the gospel, about Christ, who Jesus is our treasure in a great sense, isn't it? The gospel is our treasure. There's a parable Jesus tells, do you remember, about a man who finds a pearl and and uh, in a field and go, sells everything he has to buy that field. I think I'm, I'm putting two uh, stories together, actually. Treasure in a field, that's what he finds. But in any case, uh, we said last week that when you see a hearse with a dead body in it, there's never a U-Haul trailer where the guy's taking it with him. You don't do that. We leave it all behind. It's temporary. So treasure in heaven, that's the reward for the truly good works that are done with the right motive, his glory, not to get purely. Um, so what he's saying is use your resources now for eternal purposes, the kingdom, uh, the best investment we said last week. Uh, we talked about that. Keep in mind that Jesus Christ is you can never lose him. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Where two or more are gathered in my, am there in my name, there I am in their midst. Verse 22. Now, let me just caution you, 22 and 23. You see those two verses? Skip down and look at 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. Do you see that? I skip 22 and 23. Why? Because I'm showing you, if you remember nothing else, remember this tonight. The first rule of biblical interpretation is context. What is he talking about in context? What's he talking about before verse 22 and 23? Treasure, money, materialism, right? What's he talking about right after 22 and 23? Money treasure, materialism. Therefore, 
even though I admit 22 and 23 sound like it's just a tidbit he threw into the peanut butter and jelly sandwich to add a little flavor. Listen, the subject is still the same. It may not look that way. Okay, let's read 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So it's just a lot of light and darkness and eyes. It doesn't sound like it's still talking about money. It, and there's a sense in which you could take those two verses and and apply it to other things. But he's not talking about physical, uh, earthly sight. That's the first thing. He's talking about the eye, that it is more than just as the heart is not just the muscle in your in your chest pumping blood, keeping you alive. In the same way, the it is that's the heart of your the center of your emotion, your mind, your will, all of that. In the same way, the eye has spiritual application. That's what I want to go go through with you. Okay, the body finds its way, physically speaking. Now we're going to stay in the physical realm for a second with the eye, right? Eyes. It's the headlamp or the headlight right? And uh, if you've ever been at home at night with the lights on, watching TV, and then boom, all the power goes off and you're completely in darkness, it's a weird feeling, isn't it? You just kind of, okay, where's my phone? Where's the flashlight? Kind of doing, feeling around. It's a scary thing. Kids are naturally afraid of the dark, right? Were you afraid of the dark when you were a kid? Yeah, I was. You had to, when I was really a little kid, you had to close the closet door, yeah. right? Because somebody could be right there. Okay. Close the blinds all the way, mom, because there could be a guy peeping. Strangely enough, at that house, when I was a little kid in Massachusetts, we ended up having a peeping Tom look in, our, or for real, look in the window at my mother. Anyway, that's another story. Um, but, uh, okay, so if you're, he's saying if your eyes are blind, physically speaking, you live in a darker world. But if the eye is one's spiritual understanding, and that spiritual understanding is darkness, then your perception, listen, what's the t context again? Materialism, wealth, money. Then if you're spiritually in the dark, what you see as valuable, you might be way off. Look at those diamonds. Oh, the Hope Diamond. How much is that worth? Who cares, right? I don't know. Some people get so into all that jewelry stuff. I always look at jewelry and think, yeah, that's beautiful. I couldn't tell if it was fake or real. An expert could. My point is the spiritual understanding is what you see as valuable and what you see as worthless. Whereas if you have the spiritual light of the gospel in you, then you see things from a completely different perspective, lens, if you will. What you suddenly see is valuable is spiritual things that before you thought, yeah, church, good, amen, prayer. It suddenly becomes so valuable to you. A Bible that used to collect dust is suddenly a treasure 
to you. Jesus, some carpenter from Nazareth, is suddenly the most important human per person in human history, in universe history. So um, things that look valuable really aren't, and things that look worthless really are in some cases. One commentator called it spiritual cataracts, where you're not seeing clearly. Or I like this, near-sightedness. You're just looking at all this stuff on planet Earth, all of the distractions, uh, money, power, fame, sex, good looks, and you're missing. The nearsighted people can see up close, can't see that well far away. Um, that's me. Uh, and so that's why you all look so good to me right now. Anyway, just kidding. So, so we become far-sighted as well, spiritually speaking. We see long-term in terms of time, long-distance in terms of heaven, and the spiritual things become alive. So uh, that's what he's talking about here. Materialism blurs your vision. That's what he's saying. Because in context, like a context, like I showed you before and after, he's talking about money and riches and storing up treasure. Look at it again. The eye of is the lamp of the body, verse 22. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Light is always an image of the gospel. God dwells in unapproachable light. He clothes himself in light. Um, but if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. So then he makes this analogy. If then the light within you is darkness, that's really, really dark. It's basically what he's uh, saying. Um, Tim Keller in his sermon on this section brings up an interesting point. Materialism blinds you. It's a stealth sin. Materialism, this is interesting. Materialism blinds you to materialism. You say, well, now you're, that's double talk. No, listen. He, Tim Keller, is a pastor in New York. He passed away earlier this year. If you ask pastors, Christian counselors, do people ever come to you and say, I have a trouble with alcohol? Yes. Drugs? Yes. Stealing? Yes. Lust? Yes. With materialism? No. People don't usually go to a counselor and go, I'm so greedy. I need help with my materialism. Now, in this culture that we live in, I'm, I'm going to guess that most of us are middle class, what Americans would call middle class, right? Some may be wealthier than others. I don't think anybody is destitute and that dirt poor that's listening to the sound of my voice, but maybe. Let me say this, if you can afford Zoom and a computer and a phone, you're not that poor. A third of the world goes to bed not knowing at all where they will get food or water tomorrow. That's poor. So in a sense, we're all wealthier than most in the Western world. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but materialism is a stealth sin. Um, I want you to notice this is the only sin that he talks about, the eye and perceiving it that way. In other words, nobody ever thinks of themselves normally, am I too materialist? materialistic? Am I greedy? Am I hoarding stuff? Am I too focused on money? People don't generally think about that. But all the other sins are not stealth sins. What do you mean? I mean, nobody ever gets into bed with someone to have sex with them and goes, hey, wait a minute, you're not my wife. I'm sure. 
you know you're committing adultery if you're committing adultery. Or if you're looking at pornography, you know that's lustful. You know. Materialism is a stealth sin. We need to be very careful about that. Um, Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. Do you remember the story? It's either Acts 4 or I think it's 5. Um, the, there's a, the church is young. They need money. So people are donating like crazy to the church. It's a wonderful thing. And Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of property. We'll call it five acres in Oakhurst. They sell the property for $120,000. And they come to the church, to Peter and the others in the church, and they say, we sold our property and we're giving all the money to the church. Here it is, $90,000. You say, wait, well, how much, what did they sell for? 120000 So they kept some of it back. Is that a sin? No. If they sold it for 120000 and they gave the church 5000 10000 12000 great. That's nice. But to lie and say, we're giving everything we got to the church, fingers crossed. And they keep some of it back. That's lying to God. Peter calls it lying to the Holy Spirit, equating the Holy Spirit, by the way, with God. Um, so that's an example of spiritual materialism that's blinding. They don't even know what happens. If you know the story, they both end up dead. And you know who kills them? Peter. No, God. Wow. So um, Jesus speaks more about money than any other writer in the New, any other speaker or writer in the New Testament. 11 of 39 parables are about money that Jesus talks about. What does he know about it that we don't? He knows that it is easy for people to become enamored with it, to love it, to the point that it becomes too much of a focus. What we're going to see here is two extremes. I'll just hint at that for right now. Um, and I'll show you that the two extremes are the very wealthy and the very poor, and that both can be materialistic equally, surprisingly, in my opinion, too. So what does Jesus talk about? What do the scriptures talk about? Avoid the love of money. Choose God over money. Be generous. Be ready to give. Trust God, not riches. Be generous. We already talked about that one. Uh, take care of the needs of your family and of others. Bringing, uh, being generous with your time, talent, and treasure brings light to your life and to others. When you give money away, every time you do it, listen, it gets a little easier. Every time you don't do it, it gets a little harder the next time. It's just an interesting thing. Um, okay. And we're talking material possessions as well as money, of course. Uh, verse 24. Now we're back to money again. Doesn't sound like it at the beginning. What he's talking about here, you can't serve two masters. Do you see that? You love one or hate the other or vice versa. He's not talking about somebody that's holding down two jobs. In our culture, we think master, boss, servant, employee. I get it. That's not it. Okay? Because you can hold down two jobs. And while you work at Kmart, that's your boss. Harold is your boss there. And while you work at the gas station, Jim is your boss and... You, it's perfectly doable as long as the hours don't clash, right? He's talking about slavery. Masters means owners. It's a slavery term. 
Okay, so with that in mind, no one can serve two masters. Why not? Because if Andrew here has purchased me as his slave, he owns me and can cannot demand some of my time, right? Because he owns me, listen, 100%. There's no 50-50 with the master-slave relationship. It was unheard of in, the, in that era. They would never say, you have him Tuesday through Friday, and I get him the other days. It would never happen. You have somebody 24 hours a day, seven days a week as your worker to do your bidding. No one can serve two masters, verse 24. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. What's he talking about? What are the two masters? Money and God, he tells you at the end of verse 24. Do you see it? There is another master. We won't talk about it now. I don't want to get off track here, but it occurs to me. Perhaps the biggest master in the world is not, other than God, is not money itself, right? Selfishness, my will, I'm going to do it my way, Frank Sinatra theology. That's dangerous too, and that's the default position of mankind. God told Adam and Eve, you can eat anything you want here. I got all kinds of trees, avocados, cherries, you name it. Don't eat that one tree. Satan comes and tempts them, and they, to quote Fleetwood Mac, they go their own way, don't they? I'm going to do this. Yeah, me too. So selfishness is the other one. But here's Jesus talking about two masters, and of all things, he picks either God or money. The two clash. And I want to take that apart for a second and ask the question, well, why is that? Is it the look of money? No. The smell of money? And there is a smell of money. Have you ever noticed? No. The feel of those $100 bills? No. Then what is it? I'll tell you what it is. Money, people think in the world, money buys, wait for it, security, happiness right? He just has shown us, no, it doesn't, because moth and rust and thieves make it, you know, not that secure. Anything you can lose that you think your security is in, if you can lose it, there's not that much security in it, right? So you got to spend extra money on a better alarm system and armed guards maybe guarding your stuff, and, and you worry about it and you think about it. God is a greater treasure. The problem with God, if there is one, is he's invisible. But I can see money and gold and silver and jewelry and houses and cars and Rolex watches. And, and I can see that people are impressed by that stuff. And nobody's that impressed with, I'm a Christian. Maybe we are, right? But the world goes, oh, great. You needed a crutch, huh? Yes, so do you. The point is, you can't serve both of them. By calling money a slave owner or a master, what he's saying is that we can get to where instead of me, I want to earn a bunch of money so I can use the money, the money ends up using you, right? And you become a slave to it. You say, but why is that? And here's the answer. Because if you say, I want to earn, I want to have $500,000 in the bank, if I can get to that point, I'll really feel good. I'll guarantee you, no, you won't. Because you want what? Jeff just said it, more and more 
and more. My dad used to say, how much is enough? I'll tell you a little more. And he meant it in a sarcastic way because it just, just doesn't work. You're always keeping, have you heard this saying? Keeping up with the Joneses. Oh, they got a new car across the street. Who cares? It's all going to burn, right? Um, indiscriminately. Okay. So the two masters he chooses are God and money because money buys security. No, it doesn't. It buys happiness. No, it doesn't. People that win the lottery are often the least happy people. Where their uh, relationships are fractured because he only gave me 100000 What a cheapskate. He got $10 million. Couldn't he have afforded to give me more? I'm not speaking to my brother now. You can't serve both God and money, but people do serve something. When Bob Dylan, for a short time, I don't know if he's still a Christian, he's a Jewish gentleman, Robert Zimmerman is his real name, um, horrible singer, but a great songwriter. When, <laughs> when Bob Dylan became a Christian, he put out two albums, one of which had a song called, uh, I think this was the title, but the, the, recur the recurring hook in the song was, uh, you're going to have to serve somebody. It might be the devil and it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You'll say, he was right. You'll serve something. You'll, if you're a Hollywood actress, you're going to serve those good looks as long as you can. If it's, uh, you're an entrepreneur, you're going to serve your business or money or something or your family or anything. Listen, if you don't serve God, anything else that you're serving is a, starts with an I, idol right? That happened to the Jews. Idols tend to be beautiful with all kinds of gold and silver and dressed up with jewels, and they dazzle the eyes. God doesn't dazzle the eyes that way. It's invisible. It's a faith thing. But it's weird because I look at humanity and I think, boy, the odds are against Christianity. I would think one in a million people becomes a Christian because you can't really see anything. You don't suddenly manna doesn't fall down and, but here we are the holy spirit gives us those eyes to see there's that song that the things of the world grow strangely dim you remember that song i love that what i used to think wow look at that eh. god is the true treasure you can't serve god and money two masters you're going to hate one and love the other or vice versa so the translation for verse 24 before we move on is just this don't think you can straddle the fence no i'm doing the god thing and i'm i believe in jesus um but i i i'm also trying to make money too um not just to feed my family i want to have more than everybody i'm going to try to do both he's saying it's an impossibility a contradiction in terms look at verse 25 Therefore, I tell you, don't raise your hand, but answer in your mind, are you a worrier? You don't have to raise your hand. I'll raise mine. <laughs> Sometimes, I know, Joey's supposed to have faith. I know. Do you worry? Before we're done, I'm going to ask you, what do you worry about? Number one. Number two, what were you worried about a year ago? What were you worried about 10 years ago? I bet you can't remember. Okay, 
Now that I've got your attention, all you worriers, you're worried if I'm ever going to get through chapter six, aren't you? Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? You say, wait, 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 wait a minute. Earlier, we're talking about rich people and storing up treasure on earth versus storing in heaven, right? Yes. Okay, well, Joe, I got news for you. Matthew, I got news for you. Verse 25, rich people, even middle-class people, read verse 25 again, don't worry about what they'll eat or drink or their body or what they'll wear. We have enough clothes. This is the other extreme. We covered rich people. This is people that live hand to mouth. This is poor people. You got the picture? You say, well, wait a minute now. Poor people are not materialistic, to which I say, oh, yes, they are in a different way. They think about it. Remember, where your heart is, that's the, the meat in the sandwich. The bread up above is uh, versus whatever that was, 19 to uh, I don't know, but you know, 22, 23, right in there. They're worried about getting more money and storing up treasures. These people are poor. He's addressing both groups. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink about your body, what you will wear. Let's read the whole passage and we'll talk about it. Isn't life more than food? Duh. And the body more than clothing? Yes. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? What's the answer? Of course, we're made in the image of God. They're not, right? Can any one of you, by worrying at a single hour, to your life. And he's going to go on and talk about worrying about clothes, but let's go back to 25. Um, he's talking about worrying uh, about all these things, eating, drinking, what you wear, clothing. Am I going to have enough? Am I going to have enough? Okay. Can you imagine you who are a Christian, you would, you would, you're going to cringe when you hear this, but what if I said sometimes you and I insult God. Insult him. You mean blasphemy? No, I mean insult him. If you are a father and you're responsible for a mother and you're as parents responsible for your three children, feeding them, clothing them, and what have you, and you do, got the picture so far? And your kids one of your kids, let's say, keeps coming up to you and saying, are we ever going to have any food? And you say, we have food, honey. It's all taken care of. But what about tomorrow? We have food. It's all good. Have you ever gone hungry, little Jimmy? No. It's sort of, and you can't be too hard on a child, it's sort of an insult to the parents, right? Let me give you another example. Uh, you need something done at your house, and I say, I'll come over tomorrow and help you at 2 o'clock. You say, really? Yes, I'll be there at 2. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Let's say it's, it's a day before, 2 in the afternoon. 3.30, my phone rings. Hello? Yeah. 
Are you really coming at two tomorrow? Yeah. I said I'd be there. Okay. Thank you. Bye. 6.30 after dinner, after lunch, dinner. Joe, are you really coming? I get a text. On two, tomorrow? Yes. They don't really trust me, do they? I said I would be there. Tomorrow morning, I wake up, there's five texts on my phone. Are you really coming at two? It's kind of an insult now, right? 1.30, I'm leaving the house. Are you really going to be? Yes. How much more would God be insulted if we, wait for it, worry about stuff? Now, I want to draw a distinction. The things he mentions in these verses are not luxuries, extras. I need a bigger boat. That's what I need. It's not a need. What's he talking about here? Clothing? Stuff to eat and drink? These are poor people, right? I just I told somebody tonight, I saw an article that 60% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, hand to mouth. Are you saying they're poor? No, but I'm saying that if there's a catastrophe financially that they weren't planning on, oh no, right? <clears throat> Perhaps they need to look at what they're spending, figure all that out. Okay, um, don't worry about your life. Verse 25, warriors, is a command not a suggestion. When Jesus, who you call your Lord, which means boss, your master, which means boss, who bought you with a price, he owns you. When he tells you not to worry, it's not a suggestion. It's a command. Don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, your body, what you'll wear. Isn't your life more than food? Yes. And your body more than clothing? Yes. And now here's the analogy of verse 26. Look at the birds. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Did you know that? Well known, that's the ecosystem, Joe, of planet Earth. It all just takes care of itself. Not according to Jesus, the Lord of the universe. What he's saying here is, is your Lord Jesus is so sovereign, not only in your life, but even in the sparrows and the robins and the blue jays and even, yes, the woodpeckers, he is sovereign, even making sure they have food. How many of you have ever seen a worried bird? Birds don't worry. Maybe they know something we don't. But they also don't sit around with their mouth like this. What do you mean? They, they work, don't they? They look for worms and bugs and whatever birds eat, right? Um, okay. He's making an analogy from the lesser to the greater. If God will take care of the birds, uh, and he mentions at the end of that verse 26, your heavenly father feeds them, are you not much more valuable than they are? Do you know that you are? In our culture in the last 50 years, there's been a movement to make everybody equal. What do you mean? People? No, no. I mean all living things. We're just animals on this planet. 
and the mice and the scorpions and the mosquitoes and the, certainly the whales, save the whales. You remember those bumper stickers? I want to see save the humans, right? Re believe in Jesus, save the humans. Good bumper sticker. My point, his point is, we're made in the image of God. We are much more valuable to God than they are. Are you saying God doesn't care about birds? No, I'm saying he does. He feeds them, right? And he feeds gophers, unfortunately, too, but that's another story. The point is, you're much more valuable than they are to God. Don't insult God by worrying that he won't meet your needs because he will. We're leading up to a verse. Look at it now, and then we'll discuss it in a second. It's verse 33. Do you see it? But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you or given to you as well. What things? Everything he's been mentioning. Food, clothing, shelter, stuff to drink. He's saying, make your first priority, not money, not worry, him, his kingdom, obedience, giving to his kingdom, making it your prime directive in your life, and he'll take care of all that other stuff. Okay, we skipped ahead, and I'll look back. Um, look at verse 27. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? There's various ways to translate, translate this verse. Um, it, the word is actually a distance word, like span, like a cubit. Can you add a cubit to your life? Almost, it's a way of saying, you're not, by worrying, are you going to add lifespan by worrying? Let me ask you this. What does worrying accomplish? Really, nothing. Okay, so you break even. No. Worry, ask doctors about this. Stress, worry is extremely bad for you physically and mentally. So this is a little bit of irony. He's saying, can you add length to your life by worrying? The truth is you are probably shortening your life, right? By worrying. Um, everybody I've known that has lived a long time, my aunt in Levittown, New York is 104 and a half. Amazing. My dad died at 96, almost 97. They, both of them and others that I've known that live that long, they're pretty carefree, happy, loving, you know, people. Don't worry. Can you add anything to your, a single hour to your life? NIV has. Uh, obviously, the rhetorical answer is no. It doesn't add anything. Um, okay. Another analogy. Jesus is great with the analogies. And why do you worry about clothes? And primarily, again, this is people that have very little. They're very, very poor. They too can be materialistic. How can you tell if they're materialistic? They're so worried about that stuff. You say, well, you can't blame them. Yes, I can if they're believers. It's showing a lack of faith in God. Therefore, we are insulting God when we worry. Are you really going to provide for us? Of course. Where this will come in handy is if everything gets crazy. What do you mean? You all have food at home, I'm guessing, right? Food in the fridge, food in the pantry, some stored food somewhere maybe. You got water. But imagine if there's a shortage. You see these places where there's a disaster, right? 
a hurricane and everybody raids the stores and the shelves are empty. In Santa Cruz this weekend, I went to a grocery store to pick up a couple of things. And I didn't know that the store, well, I did know that the store is going to be closing a supermarket in Santa Cruz. So I go in there, two thirds of the shelves were completely empty because they're not ordering that much more new stock, if you will. And it, I just thought, wow, this is like one of those hurricane things. What if there's a disaster, a nuclear holocaust, whatever, and there's no food at the grocery store, and then we have to be in this position. Suddenly we become the poor person. The, the worry verses still apply, don't they? That we have to absolutely trust God to meet our needs, and he promises to. So now we're worrying about clothes in verse 28. See how the flowers of the field grow. Uh, some translations have Lizzie, Lizzie, um, lilies. They're really wild choruses that bloom in spring for a very short time there. It's a strange thing. They have no value in terms of what you can eat them. You could, they're just beautiful ground cover that God made because he loves human beings. If he'll clothe them that way, won't he clothe you? That's the point. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, verse 29, that even Solomon, that's King Solomon, Old Testament, in all of his splendor, not even Solomon, in all of his splendor, was dressed like one of these. Solomon was known for almost like, I don't mean this sacrilegiously, but almost a Liberace, if you know who that is, right? With the incredible you know, robes and the crowns and the, he's saying even Solomon wasn't arrayed that way. And we're talking about little insignificant weeds, basically, wild flowers that grow. Yet, I'm sorry, verse 30, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, notice the temporariness, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? May I insert you who insult God by worrying. If you're like me, I told somebody this week, that's a friend of mine in Nevada, we prayed for him, who's dealing with cancer and he's worried. I understand it. I told him this week that I have a pattern in my life that I'm not proud of, which is problem comes. I pray about it. I give it to God, and then I worry about it, which means I go pick it up again and worry about it, okay? Pattern, give it to God again, worry again. I'm up in the middle of the night worried about it. I get up and read the Bible and go back to sleep, and I worry about it some more. And, then, and eventually, God comes through, and the problem is gone. And Joe gets on his knees and apologizes to God for being an idiot, for worrying. I'm sorry. I know that was an insult. That was like the little boy going, are you going to feed me? Are we going to have any food tomorrow? Yes. We, we always, we, I always take care of you, says God. Let's take our two-minute break and make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away on Zoom. Be right back. Welcome back to the Tuesday night Bible study. We're in the book of Matthew chapter six, and the teacher better get his his mind in gear to get through this chapter. Amen. Um, so again, from the lesser to the greater, if he takes care of the birds, if he takes care of the flowers and adorns them in a certain way, 
Don't you think he'll take, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Now, God clothes the flowers and feeds the birds, listen, invisibly, supernaturally. So if you take this too far, you're going to read this and think, oh, so if we don't have any food, he's just going to make food appear in the fridge miraculously. He could, he might, but probably not. Probably if we don't have any food and the Jeffreys find out, the Sharinos, you know, they don't have any food. It's in this disaster thing. And they bring food over. It may look like they brought food and they did. But more likely, the Holy Spirit said to them, go bring food to the Sharinos, right? And while you're at it, the Mulders and Randy and his family and we take care of one another because God prompts us to do so. Could he do it miraculously like the manna from heaven? Sure. Maybe he will if it gets that crazy, but maybe we're supposed to meet the needs of one another. Um, Galatians 6 says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So um, let's see, go back to the text. Uh, are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay. Zoom, are you awake, people? Uh, amen from Zoom land. I love that sign. Okay. Uh, huh. verse, uh, verse 30. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Do you know why that's there? Because this is another proof in the commentaries, they said, another proof that he's speaking to the very, 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 very poor people. People heated their houses with wood, and they heated their stoves with wood. However, really, 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 really poor people heated their houses with and made fires in their stove with dead grass, dead flowers. Got the picture? That's why this is very poor people. It's thrown into the uh, fire. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Uh, will he not more clothe you, you of little faith? He ends up saying that, remember Jesus does, to the disciples when they freak out during the storm on the boat. Do you remember? And they wake him up. Don't you care? We're perishing. And he says, shh, and the whole storm just stops. It's a beautiful. I'm going to check that video out when I get to heaven. Okay. Um, Verse 31, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans, the Gentiles, the unbelievers run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. Did you catch that? If he knows that the birds need things and the plants need things, don't you think he knows your needs? When in doubt, consult the manufacturer's manual, right? When you're dealing with a piece of equipment or whatever, the manufacturer's manual for humanity is the Bible. And this is telling you, he knows your needs before you ask him. God will always provide. Okay, a few detours just to keep you awake. Go to Philippians chapter four. Uh, well, let's go to Proverbs since I'm already there. Proverbs 12, middle of the Bible, kind of. Take a right when you get to Psalms. Proverbs 12, verse 25. The lazy, I'm sorry, wrong verse. An anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up. 
I love that. Okay, Philippians 4, way into the, the New Testament, verse 6 and 7. This might be the greatest of the worrier scriptures. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. Translation, don't worry about anything. Yes, but you don't know my situation. Yes, he does. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then what will happen? What's the opposite of worry? Peace. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's a picture of somebody guarding your heart and your mind. Did you see that? That peace from God is going to guard uh, your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Guard it from what? Worry. I have a suspicion some worry comes from within. We're just warriors naturally, some of us, right? I didn't make you raise your hands. Be, be thankful for that. But I think sometimes, whether you're a worrier or not, I think sometimes that Satan likes to say, uh, Don Collins in our church calls this the land of what if. What if this happens, Joe? What if that happens? What if? What if? And then you start getting on that treadmill. Oh, yeah. Listen, the answer to that question is God will handle it. What's the next question? God cares for me. What he desires to have happen for me will, and even if it's horrendous, he'll bring me through it. What if? Don't worry. Um, pagans act like, listen, because it says pagans, Gentiles, worry about these things. They're acting like, listen, fatherless children. You know who has a right to be worried and concerned is a child in India whose parents are dead and has no one, an orphan right? I don't mean in an orphanage. I mean a street child. You can't blame him for being worried, right? Pagans act like there's no God. That's the definition of a pagan, basically. They don't believe in the God of the Bible. They worry about these things. We should never. If we were this worry-free, what a witness to unbelievers. Aren't you worried? No, no. God will provide awesome testimony. Um, don't forget, if I said, um, don't worry, uh, Ken, don't worry, Charlotte. Um, there's a guy I know that will take care of you. Okay, what's your next question? Who is he? What does he have? Well, he's homeless right now. But he's looking for work. He lives under the bridge in Oakhurst. He'll take care of you. Really? But what if I said there's a guy, a God, who will take care of you, and he has everything? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Is that it? No, it's a way of saying he owns everything. He has unlimited power, unlimited knowledge, unlimited presence. He's with you everywhere. That's a guy you can trust to take care of your needs. Don't insult him. Don't worry. Okay. Don't beat a dead horse, Joe. Move on. Okay. I, we will. Um, there it is. 
with all that worry stuff, here comes the antidote to worrying. It's a promise from Jesus Christ. Verse 33, but seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness. That's important. We'll come back to that. And all these things will be given to you as well. It's a promise. He's saying the default position for humanity is, I worry about me first. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? Where am I going to live? Do I have a roof over my head? These are my basic needs. There may be other needs. Um, I'm going to worry about those things. This verse turns that upside down and says, no, don't make that your first priority. Make your first priority two, two things. Seek first. That's a priority thing. Notice it's not in the top five or ten. It's seek first. Make number one on your priority list two things. What are they? His, God's, kingdom. Okay, stop right there. What does that mean? It means that there is a kingdom, and there, if there is, then there's also a king, because it's his kingdom, right? Make that your first priority. Well, how do you do that? What's the nature of his kingdom? It's a spiritual kingdom, right? But it has extension in time and space in the physical world as well, in that we deal with other people. He provides for our physical needs. It's not just spiritual. I believe we thank God at my house for every single meal at restaurants. We bow our heads and thank God. You know why? Because I believe he provides every meal that we eat. Well, you earn the money. No, no. He gave me the ability to earn the money. So one way or the other, he's providing the food. It didn't float down, <clears throat> excuse me, from heaven but it's still his provision. Um, seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. Making him a priority. What did we say earlier? How can you tell where your treasure is? What do you spend the most time on? What do you think about the most? What do you dream about the most? What do you spend the most money on? That's two good indicators, right? If his kingdom is your first priority, you are in his word a lot. You go to church. You go to boring Tuesday night Bible study where you can catch a nap if you like. You make sure that you're reading his word and praying daily. You are involved horizontally with other believers in fellowship and meeting the needs of others. You are trying to the best of your ability in the power of the spirit to obey his word. And you're doing it with the following attitude. Listen, what is it again? It's a kingdom. How many kings are there? One. And guess who it isn't? You or me. What does that make me? It makes me a serf. It makes me a servant. It makes me a very low person in the kingdom. It's all for his glory, not for me. So seeking his kingdom, making it your first priority. If you're not a believer, and you're investigating Christianity, man, dive in with both feet because this is it. The most important decision in a human life is what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? The second thing is his kingdom, and the second thing is his righteousness. Now, this is interesting. It doesn't say seek first his kingdom and also seek righteousness because that would mean do it on your own. Be as good as you can be. You better be good enough. 
Did you notice it says seek his kingdom and whose righteousness? Mine. No, no. It's his righteousness. What on earth does that mean? It means, we're going to turn to Romans in a second. It's a foreign righteousness. It's not yours. We've shown you the Sermon on the Mount for a, a, a chapter and a half was almost nothing else, but you can't keep the law. You can't live up to God's standard. Chapter 5, verse 48, be ye therefore perfect. I, I can't do that. You've heard it said, you, if you commit adultery, that's a sin. But I tell you, if you've even looked on somebody to lust for him, you already did it. Oh, no. You've heard you shouldn't murder. Yes. If you even say to somebody, you fool or hate someone, it's the same thing. What's he doing? He's showing you, you can't live up to the law. You need a foreign righteousness. You need a savior. Jesus provides our right, uh, his righteousness. The weird deal about it all is he paid the price on the cross and all we give him is our sin and our guilt and our faith. And he gives us robes to wear that's his righteousness. In Revelation, when the saints are coming down to planet earth, <clears throat> excuse me, in the second coming, they're wearing white robes and it defines the white robes as I don't have this in my notes because it's a, just kind of floating down to me here. Um, he defines the robes that we wear that are white as being his, Christ's righteousness. That's what we're wearing. When Jesus looks at you, when God looks at you, he sees the perfect record of Jesus Christ. Because all your sins before, present, and future are all paid for. We, we're going to talk about time in a second, but let's keep rolling. Um, <laughs> seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. On the one hand, it means you know the standard of God. What's the standard of his righteousness? The, everything the Bible says. So as close as you can, live up to that. But be thankful because you have his righteousness because of Jesus Christ. Um, I've got verses I want to go to, uh, and let's see which verse was that, 33, that's right. Um, so we replace worry with a striving, a seeking for God's kingdom, his will. When it's God's kingdom, it's do things his way. Christianity is saying yes to God, listen, in any situation, even when it means saying no to what I want. If I find out what I want is outside the will of God, according to the Bible, I have to say yes to God and no to myself. That's where it gets hard. When our wills align, it gets a lot easier. The longer you become a Christian, the more you obey, the more you read the word, you'll find your will is aligning more with his, not the other way around. Prayer is not trying to get God to do your will. It's praying his will back to him. <laughs> Okay, God promises to meet the needs of those who seek his kingdom and his righteousness first. I grew up going to church, and uh, my brother and I, especially me more than my brother, um, we would complain sometimes Sunday morning. I don't want to go today. I just want to sleep in. I was out late last night. Let's go. And my mother would say, and she was wrong, all God asks of you is an hour a week, Joe. Can't you do that? And it made me feel guilty, and I went. It's not true. That's not what God wants. 
an hour a week and then you do whatever you want. No, no, God wants your whole life. That's why it's not, um, I am your advisor, it's I'm your Lord. Lord means boss. And you don't get days off. You're my boss, but not tonight. Something's wrong. The point is, it's his righteousness. Go, go to Romans chapter 3 with me. So turn to the right about five books or six or so. <clears throat> Romans chapter 3. This explains it, Paul, is such a great writer. Um, uh, Romans 3. Oh, okay. Therefore, he just got done saying everybody sins. Everybody falls short in Romans 3. Um, pick it up in verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, by trying to keep commandments, and I'll try to be as good as I can be. Rather, through the law, we just become conscious of sin. I've told you before, God's law is like an x-ray. No one has ever been cured by an x-ray. All an x-ray does is the doctor holds it up and goes, here's the problem. Not the solution, just the problem. We'll get to the solution, but the x-ray is the problem. The law is, here's the problem. You and I fall short of the glory of God. Verse 21, here it comes. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. But now, verse 21, Romans 3, a righteousness from God. Wait, his righteousness, remember? Now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. He's saying it goes back to the Old Testament. This righteousness from God, did you see that? You can't have your own righteousness. Don't ever get to heaven and say, I'm a pretty righteous gal or dude. This righteousness from God comes, how do you get it? Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, here it comes, for most have sinned, is that what it says? No, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Christ, God, sorry, verse 25, presented him as a sacrifice for atonement through faith in his blood to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, very patient with all of us. Okay. Romans 3. Um, the other place is Philippians. So since you're in Romans, take a right and go five books to the right. Go to Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3 verse 9. Um... Let's pick it up in verse 8. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This is Philippians 3, 8. For whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him. Listen to this. Not having a righteousness on my own, or of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. The righteousness you have is not how holy you are, it's how holy Jesus is. Go back to the Gospel of Matthew with me. Um, we already talked about that. One commentator wrote, seek heaven first and you receive heaven eternally. Seek only the earth's goods, materialism, 
live for now. You lose heaven eternally. But when you seek heaven first, you get heaven eternally and you get earth thrown in. I like that. Okay, verse 34. Yes. Sure. Second half of 33. Oh, I'm sorry, because we didn't we didn't really cover that. I apologize. Uh, Dave is asking, go back and finish the second half. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Yeah, you're right. I forgot to talk about this. And all these things will be given to you as well. So in the Greek, these things would refer to, well, what has he been talking about? And what he was just talking about was clothing, food, stuff to drink, right? Translation, does he mean just those things? No, he means the basic necessities of life. And he's saying, um, and this is a little controversial, but a lot of commentaries said it. So I'm glad you brought it up, Dave. He's, this is a promise, verse 33, that if you seek God's kingdom first and his righteousness, meaning through Christ, the only way you're going to get it, then all these things will be added unto you. Translation, it's a promise to meet the needs, a little controversial, of certain people. Wait, don't you mean everybody? No. This verse says, if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, who does that class? Christians. Do unbelievers do that? No, they don't care about his kingdom. They don't even think it exists. They couldn't care less about his righteousness. They're righteous enough the way they are. They're not seeking that. So this is not a promise for unbelievers. In grace, though, he does provide for them, but not always. But this verse says for believers, always. You seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Not riches beyond your wildest dreams on this earth and fancy cars. And he's not promising that. That's not what these verses were about. They're about the basic needs. And that's really all that we need, right? Basic needs. Anything else is gravy, as my dad used to say. The point is, it's just a promise for believers to meet our needs. Um, I meant to look it up and I forgot. I apologize. If anybody knows where it is, you're going to get an A. There's a, it's either in Proverbs or Psalms. I think it's Proverbs where the writer says, um, I'm just paraphrasing. Uh, I've seen people in all walks of life, I paraphrase, but I've never seen the righteous begging for bread. Have you ever heard that verse? Anybody? Some, some of you are nodding. Yes. Some of you are just shaking your head at me. Okay. Um, all right, so uh, let's see. Therefore, verse 34, do you see it? We have to ask ourselves, what's the therefore, therefore? In light of all that stuff, the way that we can be unfaithful by worrying, the way that we have certain needs, <coughs> and a lot of things are not needs, they're greeds, the way, therefore, since God provides for the birds and for the plants, and it will certainly provide for you if you're seeking his righteousness and his kingdom. He'll provide for you. Therefore, verse 34, what do you have to worry about? Don't worry about tomorrow. Do you see that, verse 34? For, and this verse is variously translated, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble 
of its own. Other translations, therefore, take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. That's King James. New American Standard, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Translation, therefore, in light of everything we just saw about how much God loves you and cares for you, keep in mind when you pray, you don't say our provider. You say what? Our father. We have to keep that relationship in mind. He's about to talk about it. Fathers take care of their kids, protect, provide, teach, discipline, all the things fathers do. He's the ultimate father. Think of him that way. Okay, 34. <laughs> Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. You notice nobody worries about the past. You can be concerned about the past, things you did, regret. You can feel guilty, shame, anger. Nobody worries because it's already done, right? People don't even tend to worry about the present. This is the time thing I was going to talk about. What do you mean? Well, we're in the present right now. I know the situation. Worry is generally what? Future tense, isn't it? What if tomorrow, next week, what about in five years? Remember I asked you earlier, what were you worried about a year ago? Anybody know? What were you worried about five years ago? I don't know. Meaning what? Wasted energy. Don't worry. Nobody worries about the past. People don't generally worry about the present. They're worried about the what ifs, the future. So Jesus, knowing that, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The point he's making is that um, there's already enough stuff to deal with tomorrow. Live in the present. That sounds like such a, well, duh, I'm living in the present. Most people go through their lives, listen, either looking back with regret, with anger, with resentment, with revenge in mind, with shame, with guilt, or they're looking to the future with worry. What if this happens? What about that? And we skip, we miss out on the present tense. This is it right now, this moment. And look, that moment's already gone. Now we're in this moment. He's saying, live in the present, knowing that God will take care of, this is the beauty of the gospel, the past. All that guilt and shame, it's gone. Do you still know that what you did was wrong? Oh, yeah, but I know Jesus paid for it, and he's in the process of sanctifying or changing me. What about the future? Aren't you worried? God's going to take care of it. But in the present, live in the present moment, tomorrow has enough worry coming in itself. Why worry about it now? It'll take care of itself when it gets there. Um, I said to a friend as I was driving here tonight and to somebody else yesterday, uh, and I say this to members of my family, what percentage of things you worry about, what if this happens? What percentage of things you worry about actually happen? very low, right? I think 99% of what you worry about never even happens. And God sees you and I freaking out and he's thinking, it's, it's not going to happen. Would you let it go? Don't worry about tomorrow. 
because he's got it. And your tomorrow, if you take the word tomorrow to mean future, listen, your future as a believer is the, there's a Sinatra song called The Best is Yet to Come. For you, the best is yet to come. I don't care how good your life has been. The best is yet to come. Your future, listen, is glorious. Where you'll live in heaven, in a perfect world, forever, with no mourning or crying or pain. That's M-O-U-R, not get up in the morning, morning, crying, pain, sickness, death, sin, devil, none of those things ever. With all your loved ones who believed in the Lord Jesus forever, your future, I'll guarantee you if you're a believer, based on the word, not me guaranteeing it, is absolutely awesome. If you knew that, would that change how much you smile and just have a positive outlook? Tim Keller tells a story about um, two guys that take a job and it's cleaning by hand the inside of septic tanks. Two guys take this job. You think, who are these guys? Okay, just listen. Two guys take the job cleaning septic tanks by hand. Guy number one is told, you're going to make $100 a week and you sign a contract, you're gonna do this job for 30 years. And that's it, get to work. Here's your sponge, your mop, your brush, your, and your, your nose plugs, right? Okay, sorry. Guy number two though, gets a different deal. The owner tells him, you're gonna clean septic tanks for one year. At the end of the year, you'll receive 150 million dollars. Who whistles while they work? <laughs> right? What if you knew your future was that unbelievable? Would you put up with a little you know what on this planet for a little while? I have a feeling when we get to heaven, our lifespans, which seem so long, are going to seem like that, like 20 seconds in the third grade. Remember September 11th? No, let's pick a different day. September 29th, um, when you were in the third grade? No, you don't. You remember what happened? No. How about for 20 minutes from 7.20 to 7.40? You don't remember. It came and it went. That's how human life will feel when we get to heaven. Because heaven is not having a lot of time. It's, there's no time. What's time? We're just here forever. Awesome. Your future is glorious. That's the other thing. If you remember nothing else, smile and remember that. Okay. So the disciples' relationship to material goods, what are we supposed to do? Trust God, focus on his kingdom, his righteousness that we get in Jesus Christ. And if you do get that, and you do, you owe him everything. Time, talent, treasure. Be generous with your money. Don't worry. Don't pursue wealth for its own sake. The key to freedom from anxiety and worry is to trust God, seek his kingdom. Chapter seven, you say, finally. Okay, sorry. <clears throat> Chapter seven, verse one, is the most quoted scripture from unbelievers to believers. Don't judge. Are you too will be judged? Can't you just hear those people? 
Well, we believe that getting drunk is a sin and doing drugs is a sin. Homosexuality is a sin. Stealing is a sin. Don't judge. Matthew 7, verse 1, don't judge. What does that mean? Maybe not what we think. Do not judge or you too will be judged. This is a chapter about the disciples' relationship to other people. Okay, that's the whole pretty much the whole chapter. The previous chapter, we talked about prayer in chapter six. We talked about what do you, what do you, how, what's our relationship to physical wealth and our individual needs. Okay, so some people think being righteous means being more, naturally, you just have to be more judgmental. Oh, you're wearing those shoes, sinner. You, you watch that show? You had a glass of wine. Oh, judgmental. Okay. The problem with this verse, I'll just introduce the chapter, is that this verse has been so misunderstood. Does it mean don't judge at all? Because that's not what he says. He says, don't judge or you too will be judged. The same way you judge others, you'll be judged. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. So there's more to it than just don't judge. Are we commanded in this chapter to make judgments? Yes. Watch. Verse uh, 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. Now, in order to do that, you've got to figure out who the hogs and the dogs are. Right? Isn't that making a judgment call? It is. Um. How can you say, verse 4, to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, you hypocrite, take the plank out, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. He's not talking about a thing in his eye. He's talking about some fault that you can help your brother. That involves, guess what? Judgment, discernment, right? Uh, evaluation, at least. Um, okay, wait, I've got more notes. Don't go away. Um, Romans 16, 17, listen to this. We must mark those out who cause division in church and offenses contrary to the doctrine and avoid them. That involves judging. Wait, Jesus said, don't judge. Is that what he means? Um, are we to accept everything and everyone uncritically? Would you go to a church, and there is one in Oakhurst, if you're interested, that accepts everyone. Everything you do, it's come on. It's all good. Is that Christianity? Don't judge, lest you be judged. Or is this talking about something else? Is it talking about judging, listen, hypocritically, the kind of person that is judging um, with a microscope her life and his life. And with my own life, I'm looking through the telescope the wrong way. You ever look through the telescope the wrong way and it just, whoa. People tend to judge others with a different standard that they judge themselves. It's just human nature, right? And... Next week, at the same time, same channel, we'll, we'll talk about that again. Um, 
Some have read this verse and said there shouldn't be any law courts at all. No judging whatsoever in a Christian nation. That would be anarchy, wouldn't it? It's kind of like defund the police. Oops, did I say something political? Um, should we judge or not? Proverbs 14, 15, listen to this. A simple man believes anything, but a prudent man gives thought to his steps. Every decision you and I make, listen, involves judgment. Should I do this? We're going to go get drunk and go to a strip club. You want to come? Judgment. <laughs> Just a couple of you are going, yo, when, when and where? <laughs> Gee, that's an immediate judgment call. Wait, do I want to do that? No. Part of being able to judge righteously is knowing what the word of God says is sin and isn't right? Not my opinion, not his opinion. What sin is defined as in the Bible, number one. And number two, listen, being able to look into my own life honestly and say, if, if that's wrong for them, wouldn't that be wrong if I go do it? Yeah. We'll talk about judging next week. And you all can judge whether we cover the subject well. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time we can be in your word. What a joy it is. And we barely made it out of six into seven chapter uh, today, God. Thank you for being our Father. And we apologize now, as you've heard me do my whole life, God, for doubting you and worrying. Help us not to worry. Help us not to we can remember the past, but help us not to worry about uh, our guilt and our sin from the past. We know your son has paid for it, and it's incredible, but it's forgiven. Help us not to worry about the future, because we know that we have a great father with unlimited resources and power, and more importantly, unlimited love for his kids, that you will meet our needs. Lastly, God, help us to stay focused on the number one priority, seeking your kingdom and your righteousness as we read your word and obey it, as we seek Jesus who is our righteousness and your kingdom and you as our king. Use us for your glory. In the meantime, we pray these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. That's the most important thing right now. Those of you on Zoom, have a great night. God bless.